Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to please stand and turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 14 as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. The NASB says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Please be seated. So church, as we continue our verse-by-verse series, the Gospel of Luke, everything that's happened in the Gospel of Luke so far has established Jesus Christ's messianic credentials, meaning everything that's been communicated thus far has essentially told us, beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He was born of a virgin by the means of the Holy Spirit overshadowing the Virgin Mary. When Jesus was born, a heavenly messenger said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, for today in the city of David, Jesus Christ has been born. Then we see Jesus in his Father's house, in the temple, at the end of Luke chapter 2. Then in Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized at the river Jordan when the heavens open up and God the Father from heaven says this, this Jesus Christ right here is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now that Christ's messianic credentials are crystal clear, now it's time for Jesus Christ to start his public ministry. Now it's time for Jesus to get to work. And it's no mistake that Luke begins the portrayal 
of Jesus Christ's public ministry by Jesus doing what? Preaching a sermon. Now, when you read the end of Luke chapter 4, verse 13, where the text says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus until an opportune time. Next verse, and Jesus returned to Galilee. Stop. When you read those verses, it may give you the impression that immediately after Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the next thing he immediately did was go to Galilee. But that's not the case. Because when we incorporate texts like the book of John, specifically John 1.19 to 4.42, what we understand is that everything that happened there, Jesus did in between being tempted by the devil and returning to Galilee. So when Jesus is met by Nicodemus at night, when Jesus does a miracle at Cana, when Jesus travels to Samaria and meets the woman at the well, all of those events happened in between Luke 4.13 and Luke 4.14. So, beloved, by the time Jesus preaches his first sermon, he had already established a public ministry. He had already established himself as a fiery Bible preacher and teacher. He had already established himself as a miracle worker. And just so you know, whenever you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just because one verse follows another does not mean, strictly speaking, those events follow one another in strict chronological time. Because God's primary aim in revealing his Son to us isn't chronological, it's theological. It's to tell us who God is and what he has done through his Son. Jesus Christ. So verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Call people what you want. Call them fallen. Call them depraved. Call them sinners. But when people sit under a gifted Bible teacher that the Holy Spirit has touched with his fire, people can sense they can pick up on that fire. They can see the light. They can feel the heat. And the next thing they're going to do is to tell someone else about it. People would hear Jesus preach and say, there's something special. There's something different about him. And as a result, news about him spread through the entire district. Verse 15, And he, Jesus, began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. The word is not synagogue singular, it's synagogues plural, telling us that in northern Israel, in the region of Galilee, Jesus went on a preaching tour. Now, back then, it wasn't like it is now. Here, in the 21st century West, you have a local church, and that local church is usually headed by a local pastor. You go to Sunday service, you go to midweek service, generally speaking, it's that pastor, it's that elder who's going to preach and teach. But back then, 
2,000 years ago, in what we call Israel, they had a philosophy called freedom of the synagogue, meaning there were no local pastors or elders. So any rabbi, any Jewish teacher who was allowed or approved to teach would be able as he went from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. Because even though we're going to read Jesus' first sermon today, here's a newsflash. He didn't preach this just once. When we read about Jesus telling a parable in the New Testament, he never told that parable just once. He told it hundreds, possibly even thousands of times in different places to different people. Because guess what? Back then, they didn't have smartphones. They didn't have YouTube. They couldn't record a sermon. So if you miss Jesus preaching in a synagogue on, on Sabbath, guess what? You missed him. And you had to follow him to his next preaching or teaching engagement. Verse 16, And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read. Now I can't just leave this alone. The text tells us that on the Sabbath, it was, it was God in the flesh's custom to go to Sabbath, to go to synagogue, excuse me, every Sabbath. Translation, every Sunday, Jesus went to church. Let's rewind that. Every Sunday, Jesus went to church. If there was any human being in the history of the human race who could say, I'm not going to learn anything from the pastor this week. If there was any human being could say, that church, they could do blank better. If there was any human being who could say that church is full of hypocrites and sinners, if there's anyone who could say that and it be truly true, it was Jesus. But the text does not say Jesus felt tired and missed church that, Sab that Sabbath. It says it was his custom each and every weekend to go to synagogue and to exposit and to sit under the public proclamation of Scripture. And if Jesus is the one who sets our example, makes it his custom to attend weekly worship services, that simply makes all the excuses we have in the modern West just sound weak and self-serving. And don't get me wrong, when you go to a church service, you're not there to impress me. When you go to a church service, I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm never going to keep attendance. You are not saved by your church attendance record. But when you go there, who's going to be there? Jesus will. Because that's where he was, as was his custom. And here's the thing, there's nothing magic about walking into a church building because a believer and an atheist can do the same thing. But when you walk in with your right heart and mind in place, expecting to hear and meet Christ, that is how you grow, sitting under the Word. Then the text says that Jesus stood up to read because it was, it was a sign of respect and adoration for the word of God on paper. Verse 17 says, 
And the book was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Stop. Now I want everyone to use their sanctified imagination for a second and travel back in time 2,000 years. I want you to imagine that you're a Nazarene, that you lived in the village of Nazareth, and you knew this boy called Yeshua, Mary's son. He was a regular old boy. You saw him grow, you saw him play, you saw him eat dinner. He seemed like a normal kid. But then you hear that Israel's national hero, John the Baptist, one day baptizes Yeshua. And the heavens opened up, and God declares, this is my son. Then you hear that Yeshua begins going all throughout Judea, all throughout southern Israel. He begins preaching. He begins teaching. And his exposition is so awe-inspiring. It's so amazing. People get wondering, who is this man called Yeshua? Then you hear about him doing miracles. And then you hear that Yeshua is coming back home. He's coming back to Nazareth. And now, as a Nazarene, you walk into synagogue that weekend, and you see Yeshua standing there, and he opens the scroll that Isaiah is written on, and he's about to deliver the preached word. And you are gnawing at the bit, waiting to see not only what Jesus Christ will say, but what he will do. And the text says that Jesus opened the book, because Jesus is the only one who can open our eyes to explain what the Old Testament scriptures actually mean. And he opens the scroll to the place where it is written, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. Back then, they didn't have chapter numbers and verses, so he simply found the place and then began reading. And then Jesus begins preaching his first sermon. Luke 4, verses 18 to 19, Jesus is now quoting Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. And then Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus then says, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, meaning Jesus says, I am the one these scriptures are talking about. The verses that Jesus reads from in Isaiah are talking about someone called the servant of the Lord. And basically, what Isaiah was prophesying down the corridor of time hundreds of years before Jesus read this, he was prophesying that the servant of the Lord would come and that servant would make things right. And Jesus says, I am he. I am the servant of the Lord who has come to preach the gospel and to bring the good news of the gospel to pass. So Jesus begins his public ministry with a sermon. And the topic, the content of that sermon was the gospel. It was one sermon, 
that had five distinct parts. One gospel sermon, five distinct parts. And the first part of Jesus' first sermon is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel. Why is the Spirit of the Lord on Christ? Because Christ has been anointed. Christ has been set apart for a special service to preach the gospel. And to make sure we're clear, Jesus is not a rogue, independent agent who one day woke up and said, I'm going to be the Messiah. The Trinity is working in this first sermon. What does the text say? The Spirit, there's your Holy Spirit, of the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, is upon me. Who's talking? Jesus. So you have Spirit, you have Father, and you have Son. One God in three persons. There's a Trinitarian reference at the very beginning of Jesus' first sermon. The point, beloved, is this, that even God, even Jesus, does not act in his own private capacity. He was sent by God to preach the gospel and is empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, to do so. Because, church, the gospel is God's message. The, per, the individual who authored the gospel is the Trinity himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God sent God to proclaim God's message. And the Spirit of the Lord is on Jesus to do what? To preach the gospel. Now, I don't know if you're not saved. If you're not, perfect sermon for you. I don't know if you've, been, if you've been saved for 10 minutes or 60 years. The gospel is Christianity 101. Whenever you give someone a reason for the hope that is in you, you're going to communicate the gospel. When you tell someone else about Jesus, you're going to communicate the gospel. When someone asks you, hey, so-and-so, what's Christianity about? You're going to tell them the gospel. So if right here, right now, I say, hey, you, what's the gospel? And you don't immediately, reflexively have an intelligent, well-informed, well articulate answer ready, I highly recommend you get your pens ready. Jesus' first sermon is on the gospel. So what is the gospel? It comes from the Greek word evangelizo, translating to English evangelism. The gospel quite simply is the good news. And why is the good news good? Because there's bad news. And until you appreciate the weight the utter hopelessness of the bad news, you can't fully appreciate how good the good news is. What's the bad news? It's the worst news you've ever heard. The bad news is you don't even have to be living a life that's horrifically bad. You could wake up every morning and look at yourself and say, I'm okay. I'm a good person, I pay my taxes, I don't go past the speed limit, I'm generally a nice guy, and when I die, I'll meet God face to face, and I'll say, God, come on, I'm Joe, I'm a nice guy, let me into heaven. But the reality is, 
The bad news is Joe is not okay. The bad news is without Christ, every human being is dangling by a thread and any moment that thread may break and they will now be swallowed up by the infinite abyss where God will punish and judge every manner of lawlessness forever. The bad news is that every human being is cursed with a soul-eating, spirit-destroying disease called sin. Sin makes us poor, it makes us blind, it keeps us in captivity, and it deludes us into thinking we are not under divine judgment. The bad news is that no one can save themselves from the catastrophic effects of sin. And the even worse news is this. Not only are we all sinners, not only does all humankind suffer from sin, the penalty for sin is eternal destruction in hell forever. And the worst part of hell isn't the physical torment. It's the psychological and spiritual torment, knowing there's no turning back and you are separated from God forever. Eternal condemnation is so gruesome, it will make the worst experience you've had here on planet Earth seem like a Sunday school picnic. That's the bad news. And if I preach that right, you'll agree with me, that's really bad. Now here's the good news. The good news is that everything Jesus Christ came to do deals with and repairs the damage done because of the sin problem. Jesus came to preach the gospel or the good news. And as with any other news story you've heard, that news story has content. It has substance. That news story is a proclamation or an announcement. And that announcement tells us what God has already done to fix and deal with the sin problem. That news content tells us that God has provided a way out. He's provided a means of redemption so a person does not have to suffer the consequences of eternal condemnation, but there's a way by which they may be saved through the Son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, in its simplest form, the gospel message is this that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And the way that he did that is not by God simply turning his back, shrugging his shoulders, and saying, never mind to sin. God had to die to save you. When you truly understand the gospel message, you see Jesus on the cross, and you now know in your heart of hearts it should have been you on that cross. It should have been you dying for and paying the penalty for your own sins. But what Jesus now does is he tags you out and now tags himself in. And by, here's a fancy term, penal substitutionary atonement. He pays the eternal penalty for sin for all of the elect forever. And now the debt, now that thing that would condemn you forever, Jesus now sets you free from. 
And you may be asking yourself, well, preacher, that does sound like good news. What must I now do that I've heard the gospel message? And my response is, my dear Christian brother or sister, you can't do anything. The only thing you ought to do is respond by believing, is respond by trusting in Jesus Christ, because no one can do better than what God has already accomplished through his Son. And when you believe in Christ as your Savior, it's not just an intellectual uh, ascent. It's not just you agreeing with historical facts. It means you know the facts, you believe those facts are true, and now you cleave to Jesus with your entire heart. Trusting in believing the gospel means you don't just keep Jesus in your back pocket and pull him out every now and then when you get into a jam. It means you now realize without Christ, there's no point of life. And Christ is the one who made life here now and life in eternity possible. And he is the one who now occupies your mind, your heart, and your will. And because the only reasonable response to the gospel is to believe in, to trust in Jesus Christ, what becomes readily obvious is that there is no gospel without Christ. He's the one who makes the gospel possible. So what is the gospel? In its simplest form, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Without Christ, a man earns everything he deserves, eternal separation from God. With Christ, a man is gifted. He's the benefit of grace and is given everything he doesn't deserve, eternal fellowship with God. So that's the crux. That's the core of Jesus' first sermon, the gospel message. But wait, Jesus continues. There's still more content to his first sermon. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To preach the gospel to the poor. Wait a minute, you mean there's a designated audience for the gospel message? Yes. And that designated audience are the poor. This word that's translated poor comes from a Greek word that does not mean the working poor. It does not mean people who are materially deprived. It refers to people who are spiritually poor, but even more than that, it refers to people who are in special need of God's help and they're reduced to begging. This same word is used to refer to the beggar Lazarus in Luke 16.10, who had nothing. The gospel is preached to the spiritually poor, those who realize at the throne of God's mercy, they're but beggars. They can't bring anything. They can't merit anything with God. They can never win God over with anything that they can do. The gospel message is a spiritual message made by a spiritual God intended to let people know about what God has done to deal with spiritual sins so that God's spiritual people in eternity will worship him in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter, beloved, whether you are materially rich 
or materially poor. When you realize that we are all but beggars at the throne of God's grace and power, it is then that you are spiritually poor and are receptive to the gospel message. People who are spiritually poor do not put ultimate faith and trust in things of this world. They put their faith, trust, and hope in God alone. But I will say this. People who are materially poor or lacking in material resources, that lack of material substance, what does that do? In some cases, it can increase someone's spiritual sensitivity. Why? Because if you lack stuff in the world, you're not going to put hope in stuff because you don't have any. So as a result, now, you're, now your spiritual eyes, now your spiritual heart is more attuned to God's message of hope. In some cases, material deprivation causes the heart of a person to become more and more humble and because they're victims of injustice, because they're victims of oppression, because they realize the world around them likes to take advantage of the materially poor. They cast their eyes on God knowing there's no use in putting hope in things of this world. If you're an American, I'm sure you've heard the prosperity message before. Well, I'm going to take the bold step and explain to you today the anti-prosperity message. Church, money doesn't change you. Money only augments what's already inside of you. And it gives it a greater opportunity to be expressed and grow. And what I'm going to say is that in some cases, in some cases, God, by his grace, is going to purposely keep you poor. God is purposely going to prevent you from making you rich here on earth. Why? Because God is protecting you from yourself. Because he knows by his grace, if you get money, you get jewelry, you get cars, you get houses, you're going to get puffed up. You're going to begin trusting in stuff. And a God abhors someone who's prideful. But God, by his grace, is going to permissively not allow that to happen and keep you materially poor. So he doesn't give you fuel to destroy yourself. Now, God does not preach a message to the spiritually poor so that we're beggars forever. He preaches a message to the spiritually poor so that now we cast our eyes on him and trust on him so that now he can gift us with treasures that don't fade away, with treasures that last forever so we will have a rich, abundant spiritual inheritance, gifts like love, like peace, like joy, like eternal life. For as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ preaches the gospel message to the spiritually poor. That's the first part of the sermon. Here's the second part. Jesus says, he has sent me to proclaim release 
to the captives. The way Luke uses his word release, it refers to the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus proclaims release, he proclaims release in a legal and just way. Jesus doesn't go to someone else's property and say, now you're mine. Jesus doesn't take something that actually belongs to someone else. The way he releases captives is he ransoms you. By the price that he pays by his shed blood on the cross, now you're his. Now you are rightfully and legally a child of God. So when Jesus proclaims release, he is now getting the child that will be his for eternity. And not only does Jesus pay the penalty for sin on the cross by his blood, he also releases us from the grip of power of sin here and now in this life. So our wills are no longer held captive by the forces of darkness. Because sin, beloved, puts people in chains and holds them captive. But the sad reality is this. We live in a world where people are held captive by the power of sin, but they don't know that they're slaves. When people say things like, I don't need your God, I don't need your church, I don't need your Bible. Do you know? They think they're free. They think they're exercising freedom of choice, but they are actually not free to respond to the gospel. Why? Because their will is held captive by the forces of darkness. 2 Timothy 2.26. It doesn't matter how many miracles, how many proofs, how many evidences you give them, they are not free to respond to the gospel because their will is held captive. People are, in held, are being held captive by a diverse manner of things. They're held captive by self, by pride, by passion, by public opinion, by convenience by the past, by tradition, by ignorance, by habits, by phobias. People are held captive by dead people. And the most abominable irony about the captivity of sin is that some people actually have a delight and affection for their chains. They have a chain around their neck and they're sitting there kissing, hugging, and telling their chains, I love you. Romans 6, 6 tells us that by birth, we are all captives of sin. This is something that as a function of being human, we are born into. But when Jesus proclaims the good news, he sounds the trumpet of release and saying, the emancipator, the deliverer is here. Because guess what? The kingdom of God is composed of free people, of people who have had their chains broken. And when he responds with that gospel proclamation that I, Lord Jesus Christ, proclaim release, now those who will see the kingdom of God are set free and are free to respond to his message. And when Jesus proclaims release, 
That release is immediate. It's instantaneous. God doesn't make a decree, and then 20 years later, now you're released. The moment God, by his sovereign will, causes your heart to turn and respond to that message, you are immediately and effectually free. And God's release is unconditional. If he ever did make a choice to set someone free based upon them, he would be choosing from everyone who was held captive. He therefore makes that decision based upon his unconditional sovereign choice. And when Jesus Christ releases us from sin, he not only breaks our chains on the outside, he breaks our chains on the inside as well. Because by the power of regeneration, by the Holy Spirit turning our hearts, we are no longer held captive by the power of sin. Now we have a new heart with a new mind. We are a new creature with new desires and now a new will that wants to pursue the light, that wants to obey, that loves and follows Jesus and now has a disdain and abhorrence of sin. Now it does not matter what your chains look like. It doesn't matter if you are ashamed of your chains. It does not matter if your chains are old or heavy. If Christ breaks your chains, who can ever put you back in bondage? Once Christ proclaims release, all chains will and must fall and can never enslave again because the bonds will burst by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the second part of the sermon. Here's the third part. Jesus came to give recovery of sight to the blind. When the Bible speaks of people who are blind, it refers to spiritual blindness, as in being a fool or being ignorant. Now, when the Bible calls someone spiritually blind or a fool, that doesn't mean their IQ is low. No, their IQ can, in fact, be really, 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 really high. But when they're spiritually blind, they are unable to see the spiritual realities that transcend the natural world. They are unable to see the spiritual kingdom of God that is far higher and above everything that exists here on planet Earth. The person who is spiritually blind or the fool is only concerned with right here, right now. They're always concerned with feeling better, not with being healthy. They're always concerned with natural knowledge, not spiritual knowledge. They are blind to the facts that everything in and of this world will one day fall under judgment and every person in this world will also stand before God. Someone who is spiritually blind will look around and say, it's a nice, bright, sunny day. I feel good. Everything is okay. That is not the case for those who are spiritually blind. People who are spiritually blind may not even realize that they are blind because they are unable to see Jesus for who he really is. They may claim, yes, he existed. They may claim he was a nice miracle worker. They may claim he gave a couple of nice lessons on how to be a better person. But those who are spiritually blind cannot see Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
What Jesus tells us, church, is that the gospel message is an awakening. It's an illuminating. It's an eye-opening proclamation because he came to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. This tells us if you've ever read, if you've if ever meditated on, if you've ever examined the Word of God and haven't had windows of understanding open up in your mind, that tells you you've never actually read the Word of God. Because that's precisely and exactly what God's Word does. It opens the windows of understanding your mind so you can see the spiritual realities of God. You can see what really matters. You can see that people are the way that they are and the world is the way that it is because of sin. And the only one who came to deal with the sin problem by proclaiming the good news is the Messiah. And Jesus talks about recovery of sight to the blind. You can only recover what you once had. We once were not spiritually blind. With our first parents, Adam and Eve, we actually saw God. We beheld him. We were able to see God for who he really was when he walked among us. What happened? Adam and Eve took their eyes off God and saw something which they thought was a delight to the eyes. And taking their eyes off of God, they believed the lie, fell into sin, and now became spiritually blind. But Jesus proclaims recovery of sight to the blind. Fourth part of the message, Jesus has come to set free those who are oppressed. Oppressed comes from a Greek root meaning broken into pieces or weakened. What are we broken into pieces by? Sin. And people who are oppressed have to be set free because no one is able to liberate themselves. God was telling us in the book of Exodus, the people who are in bondage in Egypt did not self-liberate. They did not break their own chains. He had to send a mediator, Moses, who proclaimed the message of being set free. And now Jesus is the mediator between God and man who proclaims a message of release to all those who are oppressed. Because sin, beloved, not only robs us of eternal life, it also tries to destroy our lives now and rob us of the fullness of life. Sin oppresses us on a physical level, on a psychological level, and a spiritual level. Sin oppresses us on a biological, physical, natural level. It induces people to misuse and abuse their bodies. It deludes people into thinking that your physical health and your physical body is not a gift, and as a result, they abuse their bodies and they neglect it. Sin oppresses our mind and gives us anxiety, depression, restlessness, dissatisfaction, malice, hatred, and pride. And sin crushes us spiritually, entreating us to resort to idolatry and giving us a sense of hopelessness. And the unfortunate reality is that a person can actually go about their everyday lives and feel like something is missing. 
They can try everything to try and fix themselves. They can feel like there's something wrong. They can feel like there's a hole on the inside that they can't fill. And they try psychological stuff. They try medicine. They try therapy. They try experience. And they chase after one thing after another. But they can never fill that gaping hole on the inside. And that is because they don't realize the root cause of the problem is sin oppressing their soul souls. And the only way of escape is the one who deals with the sin problem, Jesus. And the best news is that because Christ on the cross has been bruised, has been oppressed, has been broken into pieces for us, we will now never be bruised when we cling to him. It pleased God to bruise his son at Calvary 2,000 years ago so that now all who are in Christ, for them there is now no condemnation, never to be oppressed again. Fifth part of Jesus' first sermon. He came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The favorable year of the Lord refers to the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is discussed in Leviticus chapter 28, verses 8 to 55. The year of Jubilee was the 50th year. It was the year after seven sevens. And the year of Jubilee was full of Jubilee. Why? Because all slaves were set free. All debts were remitted. And if any land had been sold, it was returned to its original owner. And the day of Jubilee was inaugurated by someone sounding a trumpet to let the entire nation of Israel know that the year of Jubilee started. And the day of Jubilee began on Yom Kippur. And if you're a Bible student, you got it already. On the day of Yom Kippur, it was the day of atonement when the Lamb's blood was shed. And then once the sin of the people was dealt with, then later on that day, the Jubilee trumpet sounded and now there was release. Now there was freedom. Now there was no longer any captivity. What Jesus now does is he's looking forward to Calvary and saying, I'm going to be the one, the Lamb that is slain for the sins, not just of the nation of Israel, but for the entire world. And because Jesus' atonement deals with the sin problem, now he, by proclaiming the gospel message, is sounding the trumpet of Jubilee. And this word, year, does not mean 365 days. It means era. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, he sounded the Jubilee trumpet. And it's been the year of Jubilee ever since then, where now the, anyone who responds to the free offer of grace, anyone who responds to the gospel will now be set free is no longer held captive, will now have their spiritual vision regained, and is now free to live for and worship Jesus Christ. The Jubilee trumpet is sounding right now, and the person who is sounding it is our precious Lord and Savior. 
Jesus inaugurating the year of Jubilee tells us, in spite of everything that's happened since the beginning of time, despite of God's history with his people, despite every single day people turn a blind eye to God, in spite of all of that, God's not telling humanity, never mind. God is not turning his back on people. God is telling us by sending his son that he came into this world to offer humanity reconciliation and restoration, not to condemn humankind, but to save them. The favorable year of the Lord tells us that truly and sincerely, it is a year of goodwill that God has towards men. And since the year of Jubilee began, on Yom Kippur, the day when the lamb was slain, it tells us something. That Jesus primarily did not come into this world to tell a few parables. He did not come into this world to primarily do a few miracles. He primarily came into this world to die, to atone, to pay the penalty for sin so that God can now justly proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, before I leave this alone, we have to understand how brilliant God is in this passage. Not only does Jesus tell us a lot by what he says, he also tells us a lot by what he doesn't say. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. But when Jesus preaches his first sermon, he actually stops in the middle of a sentence. And that stoppage was intentional. So let's now go back. This is what Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2 says. Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus stops right there, but he leaves the second half of that verse out. This is what Isaiah, the entire verse says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Wait a minute. Jesus on purpose leaves that last line out because when Jesus came to proclaim the good news, he wasn't proclaiming the day of vengeance. He was proclaiming the good news of the gospel. He came to tell us that God's interest is not to condemn man with an ultimate aim of judgment. God's ultimate aim was to save man as a function of his grace. But as with any other function of time, guess what? Even though it's been the favorable year of the Lord for 2,000 years, all years at some point or another end. And when the favorable year of the Lord ends, then we will enter, enter into the day of judgment. And look at how good God is. He ordains a year of grace with a free gospel message and a day of judgment. A day of condemnation. 
Because we don't have forever, the time for salvation is always right now. 2 Corinthians 6.2, so that when you believe and respond to the gospel, you will have forever. But if you don't believe in the gospel, you don't have forever. The year of the Lord at some point is going to end. And when the year is over and the day of vengeance comes and Jesus returns, there, were no, there will no longer be a preaching, a proclamation of the gospel because the year will be over. Then no one will hear the gospel anymore. Instead, they will feel in the day of vengeance. Jesus closes, well, the text closes by saying, verse 20, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Just like here, today does not refer to a literal 24-hour period. It refers to an era. So Jesus is saying today, as in ever since my public ministry began, and the same today that applied then to Jesus' listening audience is the same today that applies to us here and now. And when Jesus says, today it's been fulfilled in your hearing, the gospel is always heard. It's always an announcement. It's always a proclamation of what God did. God proclaims that salvation is of the Lord that it's a free salvation and a finished salvation. And as Jesus is God's prophet, he's the one who speaks the message. But as king, Jesus also has the power to release and to enact all the things the gospel talks about. And as our great high priest, he's the one who mediates that gospel message for us. The point, beloved, is this. When you go back and look at every line of Christ's first sermon, God does all the work. There is not one hint of human activity. This is why the church preaches the gospel message. A true biblical church preaches the gospel. For as Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one was ever saved by signs and wonders. But God's ordained means is the preaching of the gospel. And a person doesn't just hear the gospel. They hear it with their ears, which then goes into their mind, which then is deposited into their heart and now affects their will. The Gospel Message Church is a message that has remained the same for 2,000 years because it's God's message. It doesn't need any updates. It doesn't need any patches. It doesn't need any subtractions or add-ons. It doesn't need any flavoring or any adjectives in front of it. There is no white gospel. There is no black gospel. There is no prosperity gospel. There is no liberation gospel. If you ever put an adjective in front of gospel, it's no longer the gospel because it's God's gospel. The bad news is that everything in and of this world will be eradicated, Revelation 21.7. Therefore, there is no hope in it. 
But the good news is that all those who hope in Jesus Christ will not be disappointed, for we are all sinners, but Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for drawing our attention to the importance, to the urgency, and to the relevance of your gospel message. As you, Lord Jesus, used your first sermon to preach on that precise subject, so that now all of your prophets, all of the communicators of your word, so all of your churches will continue to hear, learn, understand, internalize, and have the truth of your gospel in them. So they will be living, breathing proclaimers of your gospel message, so the world may know your light and your glorious truth. I pray, Divine Spirit, that you take the gospel message that was proclaimed today and implant it in the hearts and minds of all the members of your church so they will now have the gospel message ready, loaded, ready to go, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that is in them and having that gospel message be felt by them in their hearts. So for all the other individuals in their walk that they meet, they will be able to clearly and plainly articulate the simple truth that you, Lord Jesus, did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We live in a broken world, full of broken people, but you are the one who cured all brokenness because you died for us on that cross that we may live and therein glorify you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.